Luke 23. We're going to prepare for the Lord's table this morning. If you're a visitor this morning, if you are a Christian visiting with us, you are more than welcome to join us in uh, communion as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning, okay? Luke chapter 23. As we prepare to take part in the Lord's Supper, we, I just want to prepare our hearts by reminding ourselves of the crucifixion. I just want to look at the passage in Luke 23 and just think about, meditate upon Christ on the cross and what was accomplished there for us as we prepare for communion. Luke chapter 23, the context, this is Passover week. This is when the lambs are being sacrificed in commemoration of that first Passover in Egypt, when God spared all of his people who applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their homes as he poured judgment out upon Pharaoh in Egypt. It's during this week that Jesus is betrayed by Judas. It's this week that Jesus is arrested. It's this week that Jesus faces trials. So he faces his civil trials before Pilate and then Herod and then Pilate again. And each time he is declared innocent and not worthy of death. It's during this time that Christ is beaten and flogged and mocked. It's during this time that the Jews demand the release not of Jesus but of Barabbas. It's during this time also that Jesus then pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem for their rejection of their Messiah. And then, of course, the crucifixion. And you remember the scene here? Remember Jesus is nailed to the cross, and on his right and on his left are two criminals. And this is where we take it up in Luke 23, verse 32. Let's read it. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the elders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And there, one of the two criminals there hanging on the cross is saved. As far as we know, this might be a lifelong criminal. We don't exactly know what his life was like. But what we do know is that God, in his mercy and his grace and his compassion, arranged this man's life so that in the dying dying moments of his life, there he is hanging next to the Savior. And one criminal is saved there upon the cross, and Jesus gives the promise, Today you will be with me in paradise, in heaven. This criminal, though he didn't have anything to show for himself there on the cross, and you say, well, uh, how could he actually be saved when he didn't have any time to be baptized? He didn't have any time to prove his faith. He didn't have any time to bring forth any fruit. 
So how is it that we can say with assurance that this criminal is saved? And we're so thankful for this passage because Jesus says explicitly, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's saved. He's going to heaven. With nothing to show for himself. But it's there upon the cross that this criminal is overcome with the fear of God. He considers his own guilt. He considers the eternal state of his soul. He has a fear of God and he recognizes the one being crucified next to him is the Savior. The one who has power over the eternal state. The one who has the authority to determine whether or not this man would be in paradise or not. And so this criminal in the last dying breaths expressed faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior. And he's saved. I mean, this is just a wonderful passage reminding us it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you came from, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter, none of that matters, but you can be saved. Just receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And the same promise is going to be granted you today, hopefully not today, uh, one day you'll be with Jesus in paradise. And so with that confession, this criminal is saved. Now, so here's the question. On what basis could Jesus look at this criminal next to him who just expressed faith in him for salvation? And on what basis can Jesus utter those words of absolute assurance, today you'll be saved, today you'll be with me in paradise? Jesus could utter that and guarantee the salvation of this man for what was about to happen momentarily in our passage. Jesus could make the promise because of what comes next. Now, In much preaching on the crucifixion, maybe you've heard this, men who preach the crucifixion and they just go into incredible detail trying to show the physical suffering of Jesus. He's whipped and he's mocked and so on, and of course his physical suffering is important, uh, but some go to grotesque detail. I mean, have you ever seen the passion of the Christ, right? And uh, just this, I mean, just grotesque uh, with uh, the level of detail there in the crucifixion. We're not told a lot, actually, biblically. It doesn't go into that amount of detail with his, with his physical suffering. And though the physical suffering of Christ, which he experienced, was uh, certainly uh, reflective of the anger and the vitriol of uh, wicked men and, and really brought about their rightful condemnation and really put God's justice on display as you saw the sinfulness of man come to the surface as they despised and rejected Jesus. But that being said, it's not the physical suffering of Jesus here uh, at the crucifixion which made atonement for the world. But the suffering experienced by Christ at the hand of God. At the hand of God the Father. As God the Father pours out his judgment upon Jesus on the cross. It's this judgment by the Father executed upon Jesus that we see next in our passage. Look in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. What is this? This is, what, the third hour? It says they crucified Jesus the third hour, 9 a.m. It's now the sixth hour, that's 12 p.m. And our passage says that for three hours, darkness covered the area. The sun's light failed. So that's three hours. That's 12 noon to 3 p.m. I mean, this is the time when the sun should be the highest. This is a time when the sun should be uh, the hottest. And everything goes dark. Everything goes dark. What is this? What's happening here is not normal. It's not natural. What's happening here with the darkness that comes as Jesus is hanging on the cross is miraculous. 
God is communicating something with this darkness. Darkness has been used by God throughout his dealings with man to indicate the coming of divine judgments. The coming of divine judgment. In Amos chapter 5, verse 18, as judgments being pronounced upon God's people, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Sinful, hypocritical followers or those who claim to worship God, hoping for the day of the Lord, and the prophet says, No, you don't want the day of judgment to come. It's a day of darkness. Joel chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, and the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never pass through it. And this is just the prophet uh, predicting coming judgment. But the point there is simply connected with the coming judgment of God is what? The sun and the moon are darkened. Darkness represents the coming of God's judgment. And not only is there biblical precedence for darkness to be associated with the coming judgment of God, But there's also biblical precedence for uh, the idea of a localized darkness that actually falls on one area while other areas are lit. Could you think of a situation like that in the Bible where darkness falls on one area as a matter of judgment while another area was still in light? Yeah, you can in Exodus, right? That ninth plague that God pours out upon Egypt. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. What is this? God, in judging the rebellion of Pharaoh, the sinfulness of Egypt, brings a darkness all over the land. And, and, and I don't understand. How can darkness be felt? It says a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. God's judgment and darkness rolls in. A darkness that can be felt. I mean, a cold dread as the sun is blacked out. People overcome with that sense of fear and despair in Egypt. In three days of darkness, it says. And what did that precede? That ninth plague in Egypt when the darkness rolled in, indicating God's judgment was coming upon the land. What was the tenth? What was the tenth plague? It was the death of the firstborn. God's judgment upon Egypt was such that the oldest or the firstborn in each home was killed. And then the promise to his people was, if you believe, take a lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorpost. And that was the very first Passover. So what's happening here? Well, darkness over a localized region there in Egypt. God is pouring out his judgment while simultaneously providing a way of escape for all those who believe by faith. That's what was happening in Egypt when the darkness rolled in. What's happening when the darkness rolls in in Jerusalem? God is pouring out his judgment while simultaneously providing a way of escape for those who believe by faith. But not the lamb's blood spread upon a doorpost, but the lamb of the Son of God, which is being spilt. Instead of three days of darkness in Egypt, there are three hours of darkness in Jerusalem. 
Instead of judgment upon Egypt, what's coming here is the judgment upon our sin. And here is the twist. Jesus pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem as he's heading to the cross. And they're guilty. They rejected their Messiah. Thousands and thousands of years of divine privilege, divine revelation. They're given the covenants. They're given the promises. The Messiah comes as their descendant. The new covenant is a Jewish covenantal promise. Okay, they had every divine spiritual privilege. And here they reject the Messiah. So Jesus says, judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. Their house will be left to them desolate. And Seventy years later, we know that that happens. But here in this moment... Jesus is there on the cross. The Jews have rejected him. The darkness rolls in, and you might think, God's going to judge Jerusalem just the way he judged Egypt. But the twist is this. The judgment rolls in. The darkness rolls in. But God is not coming at this moment primarily to judge Jerusalem. He's coming in this moment to judge his own son. The darkness that rolled in was God's judgment, and here we find the purpose of the cross. Not that mankind would simply be found guilty because they physically marred Jesus Christ, but here we find the divine purpose, in that Christ upon the cross willingly gave himself to bear the judgment of God against our own sin, so that he could say, as he's being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in that moment, Jesus was offering himself between the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God, bore that wrath, so the judgment that really was due, all the people there present, Jesus took upon himself. This is the divine purpose in the cross. In Amos chapter 8, verse 9, another passage that connects the judgment of God with darkness and coming judgment upon Jerusalem Upon God's people, it says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. And here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying upon the cross. Darkness of God rolls in, and there he bears divine judgment. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, after Christ dies, is buried and risen again. And this is Peter's powerful sermon at Pentecost. He preaches and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The point is this. As these men reject Jesus and say, crucify him, crucify him, release to us Barabbas, uh, crucify uh, Christ, they think they are in total control. They think they are executing their judgment upon Jesus. In reality, what's happening, this is God's divine plan from the beginning of the world according to his divine uh, foreknowledge. And it's not, the big deal here is not man executing judgment upon Jesus, but it's God himself coming, as we're going to see, and providing salvation for all of mankind by pouring his judgment out upon his Son. In Acts chapter 4, verse 26, we're reminded, Peter and John and the other disciples, 
They say the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And here they're praying after suffering persecution. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What does it say next? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So make no mistake about it. Though things seem to be out of control, God is in complete control here at the crucifixion, and it's God who's bringing judgment. And so this is three hours of darkness. In these three hours of darkness, the judgment of God has come against his own son, who offers himself willingly, and it's in these three hours that Isaiah 53, verse 10 through 12, this is when these events are taking place. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who's the him? Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What is this? Though he's going to offer himself as an offering for guilt, his days are going to be prolonged. Well, how in the world can somebody who offers his body as a sacrifice for guilt then see his days prolonged? Well, that's a reference to the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is, he will accomplish all that the Father has sought to accomplish through him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The Father will be satisfied seeing the anguish of the soul of his Son. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And that is through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is actually, then what? Producing others who will be declared righteous. That's imputation. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's the victory that Jesus is going to accomplish through the resurrection. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. On a spiritual level, this is what's happening in those three hours of darkness. The judgment of God has come. Jesus Christ offers himself as a sacrifice. He bears the wrath of God. Why? So that many could become righteous. So in the moments when the Passover lambs are being slain by the priests as suitable substitutes for their offerers, Jesus Christ hangs on the cross where he was about to be slain by God as a suitable substitute for all who would believe in him. And so God offers himself a Passover lamb, perfect, without spot, capable of taking away the sins of the world. His lamb would be able to bear his full wrath. His lamb would be able to satisfy uh, the righteous judgment towards sin uh, for all those for whom Christ died. 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul tells us plainly, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for, your, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans 8.32, 
God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is substitution. This is a substitutionary sacrifice. This is penal substitution. That is, Jesus putting himself in our place to bear the penalty that is due to our sins so that we could go free. So what's happening in these hours of darkness is that God the Father is pouring out his own wrath upon his perfect son. The just penalty for our sins Jesus as the Passover lamb, the sin offering, the scapegoat, I mean the fulfillment of every Old Testament picture, perfect fulfillment of the sacrificial system, bearing the full wrath of God, which your sin and my sin deserves. The word which the Bible uses for the satisfying of God's judgment, the satisfying of God's wrath, the word that the Bible uses for that, big word, but it's a biblical word, propitiation. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love... Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. How did He express that love? And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's holy wrath against the sinfulness of mankind is satisfied. Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God, which was due us because of our sin, and God's wrath was completely spent upon Jesus. His wrath was expended, his justice was exercised, and his righteousness was perfectly expressed. Now, I want you to look at a key passage, and we went over this in the membership class this morning. Um, But it's an important passage in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Follow along with the logic here. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. If you're here this morning and you think you can be saved by your own good works, you haven't received this from the Bible, right? Uh, You've received that maybe from tradition. You've received that maybe from what you've been taught elsewhere, but, but the Bible doesn't support such a concept. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved by keeping the law. This is what Paul is saying here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that's what Jared talked about when he presented the catechism this morning, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Not saved by works, you're not saved by the law, you're saved by faith in Jesus, you're saved through belief, okay? And so there is a righteousness you can attain, not by keeping the law, but you can actually attain that righteousness through faith. That's what Paul is saying. Continue. For all have sinned, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, it has to be this way because all have fallen short. None can actually achieve the righteous standard of the law, right? I mean, to keep the law requires perfect personal and perpetual obedience, which none of us can can render. So we're all sinners. We cannot keep the law. So there is no righteousness to be attained through the legal system, okay? So... We all fall short of the glory of God, verse 23. And are justified, justified, declared righteous. We are declared righteous, justified by his grace as a gift. Salvation is by grace, through faith. It's not ourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anybody should boast. And so this is a gift, it must be a gift, it cannot be a reward, because we're all sinners and we all fall short. So we're justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, here it comes whom God put forward as a propitiation. 
by his blood. God himself presents his own son and saying, my son is the one who will bear my wrath, my wrath, my judgment against the sinfulness of mankind because all have fallen short, all are sinners. It will be expressed to its fullness and will be completely expended upon my son so that my wrath will be turned away from those who are sinners, which is all of us. So then what? Well, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That is, okay, well, if God's going to save us through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death upon the cross, then what about all those people who came before Jesus? What he's saying is that God in his mercy, say Old Testament God angry, New Testament God love, right? No. Old Testament God, same God. He looked over former sins and withheld his judgment in the Old Testament, even welcoming people into relationship with himself, anticipating the sacrificial death of Christ, which was to come. And so some might think, well, uh... Look at all the sin that generations have gotten away with because God did not just pour out his unmitigated wrath. I mean, obviously, sin must not be that big of a deal because look at all the sinful men. I mean, read the Old Testament. I mean, it is a mess. Even those who claim to be God's people, it's a disaster. But God still had relations. So then you think, so then God must not be all that righteous or all that holy because look at everything he looked over in the Old Testament. What Paul is telling us here is the cross was God putting on display his righteousness. God never forewent his justice. God never overlooked sin. God held his wrath and held his judgment against sin, anticipating the crucifixion of his own son. And so Christ on the cross and the wrath of God as the darkness pours in, he pours out his wrath upon uh, Jesus Christ. This was showing God's righteousness. Sin must be judged. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26 of Romans 3. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I know we're getting a little bit theological here. Such an important passage. So that he might be just, what is that? Judges Jesus Christ so that every sin, that Jesus Christ could bear the penalty of that, so that there's no sin that goes without justice. Jesus Christ bears the wrath of God. Why? So that God can satisfy his justice. Now, sin is all taken care of in one of two ways. God's justice will be satisfied in one of two ways. You receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord by faith. His death upon the cross is counted as if it is on your behalf. God's justice is satisfied by Jesus, and you're saved. However, you don't receive Jesus by faith. That death is not counted as if it is on your behalf. And then God's justice will still be satisfied against your sin as you bear his eternal judgment. And so, Christ dies. God's righteousness is put on display through the judgment of sin in Jesus so that his justice can be satisfied. But also, it says, and this is amazing, 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So on one hand, I'm going to declare a sinner as if he is righteous. He's not righteous. I'm going to declare him as if he is righteous. He's the justifier of the one who has faith while maintaining his justice. It's not a just judge who lets somebody off the hook who's actually guilty. But God the Father is both just in that all sin is judged while also making a way that he can declare righteous the ones who have actually committed those sins. How did that happen? Through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that he might be just and the justifier of every single person who's ever been born? No, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, how can you be saved? Your sin's a big deal. My sin's a big deal. God is holy. Our sinfulness offends him. It is a sin against God himself. It incurs his wrath. Not only sin of action, but sin by nature. And so how can you be saved? Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't got to work for it. You can't work for it, right? There is, this is righteousness apart from the law. Your faith in Jesus Christ is counted by God as if it is righteousness. You are declared righteous. How can that be so? Not because sin isn't a big deal, but because God has already judged your sin in the person of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Three hours of darkness are hours of Christ's greatest suffering here. I mean, this is what led Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 in the garden to pray, Lord, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It is this agony that in Matthew chapter 27, as Jesus is suffering upon the cross, that he cries out, what? The ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. He's expressing his utter distress of soul. Christ absorbed the floggings without retribution. He received the mocking without lashing back. Jesus Christ even endures crucifixion while crying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But you know what did cause Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing the wrath of God against the sinfulness of man. God the Father counting Jesus as if he is a sinner so that we can be counted righteous. And there in that moment, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so with that, the eternal one bore eternal judgment in just three hours of time. The Father placed upon Christ the sins of all who would believe in him and judged him as if he were a sinner, though he was righteous. God's full wrath against those sins was spent upon Christ. His judgment was satisfied. His wrath was turned away. So Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So again, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, uh, it doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter where you're coming from, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what your attitude has been towards God in the past, that, that's neither here nor there. You're not going to be saved by your good works anyway. You're going to be saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Repent of your sin, receive him as Savior and Lord. And what's the promise? You're going to be justified by the blood of Christ, and you'll be saved from the wrath of God. He shows his love toward us while we are still sinners. And so God is perfectly satisfied with the offering of Jesus Christ. And how do we know that? Look in verse 45 of Luke 23. While the sun's light failed, something else happened. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's such an odd thing. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're not familiar with the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, what in the world? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The centerpiece of Jewish worship was the temple and the tabernacle before that. Within the walls of the temple, beyond the courtyard and past the altar, stood the holy place. Within the holy place were two rooms. The first room had the altar of incense, the table of showbread. But beyond that room stood the most holy place. And in that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And on that was the lid of that, which is called the mercy seat. And it was there above the mercy seat that the presence of God would actually descend in the midst of uh, the Jewish nation. But separating the most holy place from the holy place was a thick curtain. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. Nobody could pass through that curtain into the most holy place except for the high priest. He could only go once a year and he had to bring the blood of a sacrifice in order to enter in. That curtain symbolized the fact that there was always separation between the holy God in his presence and the sinfulness of man. That's what it symbolized. As long as that curtain stood, uh, that uh, uh, represented the fact that man does not have free access to God because God is holy and man is sinful. So what happens as God the Father pours out his wrath upon his Son and Jesus bears the wrath of all, or the, the sin of all who would believe in him? The Bible says the curtain is torn in two. What does that symbolize? God is saying, I am fully satisfied with the offering of my son. Sin is atoned for. Access has been granted. The way has been made open. So that all those who believe in Jesus Christ now have what? We have access to the Father through him. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once, for all, once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. He's not that high priest who's going to kill a lamb and come in with, with the blood of an animal. But by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's a lot there. It's simply saying, listen, if the animal sacrifices took care of the ceremonial uncleanness, how much the more will the sacrifice of the Son of God actually cleanse us from the inside out so that we can serve the living God? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. By the way, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, 
You understand that oftentimes in a Roman Catholic service, it is presented as if Jesus is being offered anew over and over and over again. The reality is Christ was offered once. He's off the cross. He's died. He was buried. He's resurrected. And that one sacrifice, once and for all and forever, has secured redemption. And so the writer of Hebrews continues, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Once and for all and forever, the perfect sacrifice, so that what we can actually have God's law by His Holy Spirit written on our hearts so that He transforms us from the inside out. And what? Our sins are completely forgiven, never to be judged again, and there's no longer any offering for that sin. And then, amazingly, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, here's the big therefore, I mean, all that theology we just saw, we could have went deeper there in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, all that theology of the sacrificial death of Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I know I've lost some of you at this point. It boils down to this. The curtain stood separating the holy place from the holiest place. It separated the presence of God and His holiness from the sinfulness of man. It always represented the fact that there was separation, there was enmity, and that man could not come into the presence of God. Through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, God tears that curtain in half. And what he's saying is you now have full freedom to come into his presence. If you are a Christian this morning, that is, if you've expressed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, just like that criminal on the cross, right? If you have done that, amazingly, we now have the liberty to come directly into the presence of God. Something which the high priest could only do once a year with the blood of a sacrifice, only after atoning for his own sin, and again, only once a year, and only the high priest. And now through the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have relationship with God, the holy God of heaven. And so we have been brought in through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we can draw near. Full assurance of faith. Hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What an incredible privilege attained for us through Christ. And so, as we conclude, the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus, once and for all and forever, bears the wrath of God towards the sin of all who would believe in him. The curtain is torn from the top to the bottom. Access to God has been granted. Christ's sacrifice is accepted. God's wrath is satisfied. The way into his presence is made. The sacrificial system is rendered obsolete. John records for us that at this time, as Jesus bears the wrath of the Father, he cries out, what? It is finished. It is finished. Luke chapter 23, verse 46, then it says, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus here, still in control of his own life, can lay it down, he can take it up again, and so he commits his spirit to the Father. And notice the tenderness. Just moments ago, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he takes the sins of the world upon his shoulders. God the Father then treats him as if he is a sinner, though he be righteous. In that moment, Jesus Christ experiences separation from the Father and cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. But here in this moment, having fully expended the wrath of God and fully absorbed uh, his judgment against sin, now he doesn't cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out, Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's done. Relationship is restored. Sin is atoned for. And then he breathes his last. And with that, Jesus is dead. But he accomplished everything that he came to accomplish. Mark 10.45 says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 12.27 says, Now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus had lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law, suffered at the hands of sinful men, has borne the wrath of God. The result, God's wrath is satisfied. The way into his presence has been made. Sin can be freely forgiven once and for all and forever. So then here's our last question and we're done. So who then can be forgiven? Who then is the death of Christ applied to? Who benefits from his substitution and his bearing of the wrath of God against sin? John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Talking about his own crucifixion. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's already his state, his condemnation. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, how, how can I become a Christian? How can I be saved? Belief. That's it, belief. Right? If you're here this morning and you're Calvinistic in your thinking and you're uh, not happy with that free offer of salvation, I'd say, we're just using biblical language. We're just using biblical language. What? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, believe in Jesus. He died for you on the cross. God the Father punished Jesus for your sin. Serious sin. A violation of God's holiness, which actually does incur his wrath. Don't downplay your sin. If the sin was no big deal, Jesus would not have had to die. He would not have had to bear the wrath of God. Uh, Sin is serious. We are condemned because of it. Jesus died for you, bearing the wrath of God. Believe in him by faith. He's Savior. He's Lord. Believe it. That will be counted uh, uh, on your account. You'll be declared righteous. You'll be ushered into the presence of God, granted relationship, adopted into his family, uh, and welcome. As we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, we simply wanted to think about the crucifixion. If you are a Christian this morning, this is what Jesus did for you. As we take the bread and as we take the juice in a moment, 
Just reflect. What, what, how, how, how ought we to respond to that? It ought to just be an overwhelming sense of indebtedness. We're saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. The consequence is we are just absolutely indebted to God for his goodness, for his mercy, for his compassion, that he saved us while we were yet sinners. Well, let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Dear Father, we thank you for your sovereign will. We thank you that it was within your divine purposes from before the foundation of the world to have your Son give himself for our sin. And Lord, we don't understand how the tension that exists between free offer of salvation and your sovereign will in choosing those who come to you. Uh, we understand those things are held in tension. But we also understand, Lord, that uh, we have incredible freedom to announce the good news of the gospel, to announce to others that they can come and they can drink freely to invite everyone to come and to receive salvation by grace through faith in Christ. So, Lord, we pray this morning for those who are not yet saved, that they would understand that this invitation is for them. As a criminal on the cross reminds us, it doesn't matter background, it doesn't matter history, none of that matters. What matters is faith in Christ. We're also reminded, as the religious class was guilty of crucifying Jesus, Self-righteousness doesn't cut it. Self-righteous thinking that thinks we're good enough and that uh, there's no way that we deserve your wrath. I mean, that was the Pharisees. That was the crowd who crucified your son. So on one hand, we reject uh, self-righteousness. On the other hand, we reject the notion that anybody's beyond your mercy. We just pray this morning for some who are not saved this morning that they'd receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that they'd make that public, they'd go on to be baptized in his name. Pray you'd help us as Christians to be reminded of Christ and his sacrifice for us. I pray that it would govern how we live, being reminded that we're absolutely undeserving of his sacrificial death for us. I pray that they would govern our attitude and our interactions with others and our relationships and our worship life and uh, just remind us. And I pray that you'd use the Lord's Supper now uh, to that end. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.